This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we are talking heart health with Dr. John Weisler. Also going to be talking sex after your heart attack. We dig deep into the minds of mental health with Dr. Koresh Adalati, who talks about trauma, especially childhood trauma. And we're also going to be talking about a stigmatized condition, male incontinence. And yes, there is a proven technique. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Leaking urine is not just for little old ladies, although you would think that because the marketing has been uh, typically in pink packaging. Guess what? Men leak urine too. When it comes to urinary incontinence, the impact can be even more profound for men. As some men relate the loss of bladder control as being more disturbing to them than experiencing erectile dysfunction. And studies show that a higher number of women experience incontinence as they age, but with male urinary incontinence, a great many cases go unreported and they therefore are left untreated. And the first step that we need to take in shattering the stigma associated with urinary incontinence is to talk about it and encourage people to get the help that they need. So joining me on the line to help us pull the finger out of the dike on this one is Robert Orr. He is the president and CEO of Contino, a proven men's urinary incontinence protection company. Good evening, Robert. Good evening, Maureen. How are you this evening? I am very well, thank you. And yourself? I am very well, thank you so much. Um, so this is a very interesting um, marriage, if you will, of yourself and uh, <laughs> helping men who leak urine. Um, what and it's very important. I, I I wanted you to come on the program tonight because I'm of course very interested in the subject as a nurse continence advisor. But I really believe in the, the fact that we need to bring innovation to um, to medical health conditions, quality of life issues, and uh, and we need to identify those. Uh, key stakeholders, and you are one of them. So what sparked your interest in starting a business that serves incontinent males? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, it was a bit of a progressive, uh, a progressive start. I started with uh, helping on a family friend who had, you know, the classic, he had prostate cancer and became incontinent after having a radical prostatectomy. And he was not satisfied with the existing solutions. And he figured out on his own a way of, of creating uh, a urethral insert, which we now call the Contino. And he was a family friend and he says, Bob, I need some help on this. Uh, can you help me with the patents and you can help me on the business side a little bit? And I said, sure, you know, I'm happy to help. I've helped you to help someone that is basically trying to kind of make things better. And over time, as I got more and more involved, I could see that there was a real need and there was a real gap in the existing solutions, particularly for men. Absolutely. And so it just developed slowly over time. That's great. And there are so few solutions for men. And, you know, to, to start with, um, men need to talk about it and they don't typically um, go to their doctors because, again, um, the stigma or they think that nothing can be done. You know, some of the old fashioned um, uh, 
treatments for male incontinence, which doesn't sound appealing to men, is, you know, basically um, putting practically a rubber band on the end of their penis, which isn't, <laughs> isn't um, appealing at all. Um, so you have this great device, this, this Contino device. So what have you learned that is the most surprising or insightful thing um, since you have developed the Contino? What, what really have you found out about men who suffer with this? There's a few things. One is I was amazed at the, 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 the level of choices given how long this condition has been around for men was so stark. And I was just absolutely, I just couldn't believe that a mature market with such a very common and distressing uh, condition would have so few choices. So I said, like, that just doesn't make sense. And so we would investigate and we went a little bit deeper and we go like, yeah, there's really not many choices here. And then the other big thing, I, like nobody was willing to kind of try uh, when we went around the world and patented this particular product. Nobody had tried the concept that, we have, that we're trying here, which is essentially allowing the body to more or less keep the urine in it. And then, you know, when you, when you choose to, uh, you know, you need to urinate, you remove the device and you urinate and then you re- replace it. That whole concept of keeping the urine in the body as opposed to just simply collecting it, which is what the bulk of the uh, choices were, just was a concept that was not, you know, not really considered. So that, that to me was very surprising. And then the other piece that I think is probably the most stark is that it's a very complex condition. And so a particular product is really a very important component of the solution, but having really good advice and mirroring it with uh, expert advice from people like yourself, nurse continence advisors or pelvic floor physiotherapists, that just wasn't really being promoted. And so what we're trying to offer here is something that we think is very unique, and we're trying to offer a really good expert to help that person with this condition. So they get the best result for them. And that's what I love about this product is that you've actually um, collaborated with uh, oftentimes pelvic floor physiotherapists and uh, and nurse content advisors to, and you're you're right, um, you know, it was difficult to say, hey, there are treatments out there. You can go to see this particular type of of medical professional, pelvic floor physiotherapist, to get treatment for uh, leakage of urine. Um, So I I think that part is fantastic. Um, And and it is a comprehensive approach. It's some lifestyle strategies in addition to this Contino device that, that, um, can you you tell the listeners, you know, a little bit about the Contino device and who it would be for? So it's for men, as for males, it's for a penis, obviously. Um, It's important that uh, we... First of all, that men recognize that this is a condition, so you know it's a very, very much underreported, and so they need to talk about it and get uh, get help. It's not just a it's not just a process of aging, and then the product itself is is basically less difficult than inserting a catheter by far, and it it is mirrored with very, very good advice from a particular professional that will help that person do what's best for them. And the um, uh, we, we have a very simple graduated process that we go through. And really, the, a huge amount of what we're doing is really just helping them with the change necessary to make improvements in their life. And our product is a part of that. The advice that we're providing is a part of it. And that particular patients embracing that change 
is the last part. And it's all three of those that gets a good result. And, and you know, the patients that I have referred over to uh, pelvic floor physiotherapists are delighted with Contino. They are they see it as a life changer, life altering. I had one patient who was a dentist and he had stopped mountain biking. He was literally crying on my desk. He was so depressed because of his leakage of urine and the Contino device helped him. And, and I, there's many other stories. Um, there's um, or many other situations that I have. You can go to my blog. I write about the, uh, patient cases of <laughs> I imagine this has taken a tremendous amount of time and patience and passion and uh, not to mention financial resources. So what does it take uh, to bring a product like this to market? And um, who have you relied on to support the development of the Contino? So you're right. It's, it's, uh, health innovation is very challenging and it's, uh, it takes a lot more time and resources and it's, and it's more challenging in ways that you, you don't necessarily, you don't anticipate when you go into it. I'm happy to say that we've climbed most of the mountains, if not all of them now, and we've got a great solution for men. And, but uh, the, the process is very heavy and hard. And uh, you, no way you could do it on your own. You absolutely have to have detailed experts in a variety of areas. And... The, uh, you need to bring them on and have them work collaboratively, and it's we say it all the time, but it's 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 very challenging to do that because everybody has got very specific uh, roles and and aspects of what they're going to try to do. So at the start, we were trying to uh, you really understand the product. So it's about uh, reengineering it under international standards. So we used uh, British uh, BCIT; they had a uh, medical device uh, prototype development group. We did some very basic testing then, and we probably worked with them for two or three years. And then at that point, we were ready to go to, um, you know, to some form of manufacturing. So then we used a very high-end manufacturing firm here in, in BC. And then they had to work quite a bit together to get a product that was manufacturable. And that was about five years of work and time and effort. And we were really kind of at stage one at that point. Because at that point, we couldn't really test it. So it, so the next stage was really getting it into a clinical study. And we needed to use, you know, get relationships with uh, key urologists across the country. We had to go through ethics. We had to go through Health Canada. We had to get a brand new kind of innovative way of looking at this uh, product and procedure uh, approved. Uh, we had, you know, hundreds of submissions with Health Canada over the years. We were lucky enough to get a very uh, sophisticated uh, and kind of innovative uh, urologist out of the University of Toronto, a guy named Dr. Dean Elterman. He is uh, our principal investigator in our, our current clinical study. And, you know, at the end of the day, those guys are super busy and they they uh, have lots of other resource choices and, and, and research choices. And, you know, he wanted to have some innovations. He had dealt with a lot of prostate cancer uh, survivors, and basically he was he agreed with us. He says, there's a great solutions out there, and, and this is worth putting some research dollars into. And so this, is, this gets us like uh, five or six years into our development, and at that point we're now getting some really good feedback. We're getting positive results in a clinical study. And then now we want to say, okay, how is this thing really going to work in the market with, you know, call it our, our nurses or our physiotherapists that are our partners? 
And so at that point, uh, we reached out and we were lucky enough to get a, a lady named Marzia Diane, and she is that, one of the pioneers. Yes, in, you know, uh, I, we're up against the clock. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, I, I um, No, you know what? I'm going to reach out to both of your experts, uh, Dean Elterman and Marcy Diane, and get them on the show to talk a little bit more about it. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Robert Orr of Contino. It's mycontino.com is the website. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yes, and uh, and I want to point out, you probably had lots of patients out there who helped uh, in that as well, and, and the patients are just so valuable. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the first uh, study, um, just in terms of sexuality and sexual activity, um, how that can help. Oftentimes people are worried uh, after they've had a heart attack or a myocardial infarction, an MI, they are concerned or the biggest question might be, when can I have sex again? And they're often quite afraid to have sex again. Well, this study gives us some pretty good data as to uh, that it might be beneficial to your survival. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting study. And um, exactly like you mentioned, uh, Maureen, a lot of people are afraid to have sex after after their heart attack. And, you know, uh, if patients don't ask me often if I, you know, gently and, um, you know, with permission, bring up the subject, they're often quite relieved to have that discussion because it's a big question. Um, a general rule of thumb is, is that sex is safe for most patients, even patients with heart disease, um, as long as they're able to do a modest uh, amount of physical activity such as, you know, walking at an average pace for five or ten minutes without having chest pain. Um, and so th- there may be, um, you know, a very small risk of having heart problems when you have sex because it is a form of exercise, but any risk is very, very small. And the benefits in terms of lowering blood pressure, reducing stress, uh, and so forth, uh, improving sleep, improving, you know, your bonding with your partner, far outweigh uh, any risk that's there. So, so this study, um, it looked at uh, almost 500 patients, and it looked at the... Um, you know, uh, so patients who were sexually active before they had a heart attack. And then um, they brought patients back and interviewed them uh, at three and then again at six months after their heart attack. And uh, for patients, um, about about half of patients um, had got back to the previous frequency of you know, having sex at least about once per week uh, or more. So about half of the patients got back to that level or um, had an increase in the the amount of sex that they had. And in that group, compared to the patients that had less or no sex, the group that was back to normal or or better, um, they had a significant improvement in their survival. So they had about a a 35% lower risk of, of dying, so risk of mortality, if they were sexually active. So it's a pretty pretty strong association, a pretty interesting statistic. It, it certainly is. And the study that we're discussing was published in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology um, by Gail Cohen. She was a PhD student in the Department of Epidemiology and Preventive Medicine at Tel Aviv University School of Public Health, and her colleagues actually analyzed the data. Some of these patients were on the younger side, if you will. And, mm-hmm. and so the fact that they were on the younger side, so under the age of, of 65, I think it was. Um, does that attribute to, you know, they're younger, they're more likely to have a healthier lifestyle, they're more likely to be engaged in life, maybe more likely to have a partner? I mean, that's a big complaint to people as well, um, that it's very difficult to um, to be sexually active, especially after divorce or to meet the right person or to go online. Dating in a pandemic, that's a whole other segment. But we're going to be talking about the effect of uh, the pandemic on the heart. So did, did that have something to do with it? Uh, I think it certainly could have. I think, um, you know, and, and th- th- with with this sort of study, 
was it you know was having sex the the reason that people uh, lived longer or was it just uh, an association was there something else uh, and and you can't know for sure and that you could argue both ways so i think um you know the the, the population of patients was um, on the younger side uh, and the group that had got back to their previous level of activity uh, sexual activity or increased um, also was a bit younger than the group that did not so um, all those other factors that you mentioned whether you can find a, a partner and so forth and so there's there's you can sort of speculate both ways and um, I don't think the final answer is absolutely clear you know sex does um, it lowers our blood pressure it does like give us a form of exercise so we do get some of the same benefits from sex that we would from you know going for a walk or doing other activities and of course we'd argue that there's more benefits from for having sex of course but then also um you're also probably and, and the, the author points this out in her discussion that you're probably more likely to want to go back and have sex again if you're feeling well if you're if you have a partner if you have more energy if you've recovered well uh, often recovery is a little bit faster uh, from things like a heart attack when you're younger so there's probably um you know confounders both ways yeah, absolutely we have wendy on the line from surrey british columbia good evening wendy Hello, Wendy. Hi. Uh, not a very many time caller, long time listener. Thank you. Uh, I would like to talk to the heart doctor because I have a funny little story uh, about what my heart specialist told me after my first heart attack. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, his name was Dr. J.D. Hilton, <laughs> and he asked me if I had got back on the bull again, and I didn't quite understand him. And then he explained it to me, and I was very fortunate that I had Dr. J.D. J.P. Hilton. My dad had him as well. I also had Dr. Epstein and Dr. Lemaitre, and I'm on my third pacemaker defibrillator. Wow. And uh, the last experience I had was I tried to do it, but the young fe- the fellow who saw my defibrillator fainted. <laughs> So that left me in the mood for saying, I helped him up, I sat him down, I gave him a, a cool cloth, and I said, okay, you're going to have to leave now. <laughs> Maybe he needed a pacemaker. <laughs> well, I think he could have used the defibrillator, because I don't think he was expecting to see the big piece of metal sticking out of my chest, because I lost so much weight. But anyhow, I have I had Dr. Karim, who put a deep pocket one in on me now. Mm-hmm. That's... And I just want to say people should not be afraid to go ahead and do it. And I don't think it matters what age you are. And I, and I think I heard you say with the young man that you were <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, it's OK to go younger. That. I'm not going to give out any ages. That's <laughs> no, OK. Age I is like a phone number. At 29 and I'm going to be 65 in April. Oh, wow. OK. That's amazing. Dr. Weisler, what do you, what do you think of that story? So I'd like to thank you for your story. I think, um, you know, a couple really good points that you bring up. I mean, one is that it was good that your your doctors asked you um, if you were back to having sexual activity again. I, I don't quite phrase it the same way, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, if you know your patient well and you, you the both you, the patient and doctor get along, you know, uh, as long as it's uh, understood by both, I think that's fine. You know, but, it, but it's good that they asked and that, um, and that if you'd reported some problems, maybe they could have had a discussion because there's, there's fear of getting back to having sex after you have something wrong with your heart. And also, um, some of the medications can sometimes give you side effects, so particular beta blockers that we use for a lot of patients. 
may interfere with sexual activity. So it's a chance to try and address that and have that discussion. And then I also really appreciate your points about the defibrillator. Uh, which is like a pacemaker, but bigger. So for people that don't know, um, you have a scar usually under one of your collarbones, and then there's a little bump under your skin where the device, it's, it's under the skin, but you can see it and you can certainly feel it. And defibrillators are larger. So, um, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, I'm sure that, um, I mean, I don't know all of your medical history, you don't need to, but um, if you've been stable from your heart rhythm problems, I indeed would agree it's, it's certainly uh, safe and reasonable for you to have sex again. Um, but, you know, your partners may be unprepared for the appearance, they're not used to it. And then uh, what you did with Dr. Karim having the device repositioned to a place where it was less visible, usually more uh, towards the axilla or the armpit, makes it less visible. Certainly a very reasonable uh, thing to do. And it's and again, these sort of considerations, um, the effect of a scar, the effect of a device, the cosmetic, um, you know, concerns um, are important to remember and, and to think of um, when you're trying to be as healthy as you can be. I mean, the, the goal in getting something like a defibrillator or going through treatment is to get back to a healthy and active life, which includes sex. And if there's any sort of barrier you know, cosmetic or otherwise, or fear or whatever it may be, it's important to bring that up. Your doctors, you know, your cardiac specialists and other doctors are all, you know, able and willing to discuss that with you and try to help you out. You know, we have legalized marijuana. We have it for recreational use. It's by prescription as well. And uh, many baby boomers in their 60s, 70s and beyond tend to use this. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times they are self-medicating. And, and I, my sense is that people feel marijuana is benign. Um, but I've never actually thought it was benign. Anything that is mind-altering may not necessarily be benign. But um, the health consequences, you know, we're a little bit stuck in the weeds on the health consequences of using marijuana. What is the impact on the heart? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, marijuana is very interesting, right? It's a uh, it's um, a, a very strong, um, you know, I guess a natural product, if you could call it, or some people would argue it's a medic medicine, but uh, it hasn't been um, as well studied for all of its different effects on, on, the, on the body. And, and you know, there, there are, there are some, some trials or some data that would, you know, show that it can maybe help to improve chronic pain and, you know, neuropathic pain, which a lot of people suffer from, sore joints, uh, muscle stiffness. And, uh, and people will argue that it has other benefits as well. Um, its effect on the heart uh, remains to be fully, I think, fleshed out. Um, but there, there are some data. So what sort of brought this to my attention, which I thought would be interesting for, for everyone on, on the air tonight, is the, um, there's been recent reviews of marijuana suggesting that it may, you know, put your heart at risk and that the risk may actually be similar to, to cigarettes. So, um, you know, with with marijuana, it does when you when you particularly when you smoke it, um, it does speed up your heart rate, raise your blood pressure. Uh, so there was one um, data that looked at uh, one one study that looked at people who had had a heart attack, and then they looked at those people who had smoked pot, you know, within a week before their heart attack versus those that hadn't. And so if you'd smoked pot, they're actually able to show that. Um, one hour after you smoked pot, your risk of heart attack increased more than four times. It was more than a fourfold increase. So it was within the within a, about an hour, which is when the most of the effects where your heart rate goes fast and your blood pressure goes higher. Um, there's also links um, between stroke, uh, so marijuana use, and then stroke within a couple of hours afterwards, as well as developing a rhythm disorder called atrial fibrillation, which is the most common heart rhythm abnormality. Your heart beats too fast and it beats uh, irregular, and it puts you at risk for stroke. Uh, 
Um, and so there's there's links to all three of those conditions, um, particularly with, you know, with the version of marijuana that you smoke, which is probably still the most common. Now, is that irrespective of age? Um, age wasn't well studied in terms of whether this effect uh, increased with age. The um, accompanying ed- um, opinions is that it probably does because your risk of heart disease increases with age and then you have whatever risk you get from marijuana on top of that. So that the age wasn't well fleshed out in the studies that you know were, were reviewed. But the thought is that, you know, the older you are, the high, you know, your risk of heart disease goes up just because you grow older. And also you have more a greater likelihood of having things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, which would increase your risk further. So we could say that it probably does. It's so interesting because we think of pot smokers as, you know, needing to be super chill. <laughs> Maybe they're not that chill and they want to be chill, right? But is that exactly. the mind? Is that their mind that they're thinking that maybe racing or going too fast? Interestingly enough, 200,000 Canadians with heart disease currently use or have used marijuana. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure they understand the risk uh, here. Yep, there's other, there's other studies that have estimated that somewhere between 6 and 10% of all patients who've had a heart attack use marijuana actively. And it's, it's hard to... So look at this well and study this well. I mean, for the for the longest time when marijuana was prohibited, it's really hard to study a prohibited substance. And then when, when you look at uh, marijuana, there's over 100 different um, active c- chemicals, which you'd call a cannabinoid, so something that has an effect on the body. And so there's THC, which is the tetrahydrocannabinol, which gives you the high that when you, when you smoke it. And then there's cannabidiol, um, which is CBD, which is supposed to have more of a relaxing effect. So the studies that I quoted were primarily from smoking, where you would get both. You know, somebody might argue, well, what if you get like an oil that just has CBD, which is becoming more popular? Mm-hmm. What about like an edible product? And I think the best answer is we don't know. Um, you know, the, the, and the effect that we go for that relaxes us is mediated through our brain. But there are receptors for cannabinoids uh, throughout the body, through heart cells, fat cells, platelets. And there's some data to say that, you know, platelets are higher your blood clots. So if you smoke marijuana, you may get uh, your blood may be more prone to clot and be more sticky for the next couple of hours. So there's a lot of different potential effects and interactions. Well, we really have to dispel the myth that uh, pot is benign. Anyway, and thank you so much for helping me to do that tonight, Dr. Weisler. Thanks, Maureen. Thanks for having me and, uh, and, um, and really enjoy your show. Mind Centers for Brain Excellence is a private outpatient healthcare center specializing in optimizing brain functions through various neurotherapeutic modalities. Tonight, we are talking trauma with the founder, Dr. Koresh Adelati, and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Adelati. Hello, Maureen. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for coming on the program tonight. Now, I I went to the website, which I've gone to that website many times, and if any of you have listened to the show before, you know that I need psychiatric help in a big way, so (laughs) I'm a frequent. (laughs) Your Google Google analytics goes up on uh, from right from my house. Wow, we can target this person. Anyway, uh, (laughs) no, it's it's and you know, you're absolutely correct. We all need it, but what when I was looking at your website, the very first picture that I saw was an older couple. Um, and so my question is, oftentimes childhood trauma, you know, or trauma begins in childhood. It's how people were raised. I, you know, ha- have heard from so many patients over the years that they were raised by, by an alcoholic or they were beaten by their mother or their father or they were, um, you know, just horrific stories that I can't even actually repeat. Um, is it too late, um, you know, in the, for people in their 
50s, 60s, 70s, 80s to get the help that they need to enjoy a full and engaged life? Absolutely not. Um, anyone uh, can heal and anyone uh, can uh, have a life that they deserve. Um, I mean, it, it's a matter of commitment. It's a matter of where you're at and whether this is uh, something you want to do to go over some of these events that uh, you uh, sometimes have no control over and um, for whatever reason happened to you. And um, the result, of course, has been um, taking away um, livelihoods, um, affecting mental health, affecting physical health. So anyone who wants to change that, they can. You know, you hear from a lot of people this, they'll say, oh, I'm too old, forget it. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. I've lived this way for such a long time or, you know, there's really no help for me. I went to a therapist and it didn't work. Um, or, you know, they're never going to do this. Uh, you know, they're never going to change. Uh, you know, maybe they're talking about somebody that they live with or that they work with. Um, but, you know, what does it take for people to change and to decide that they want to live the life that they deserve, as you say? Uh, two things. First of all, they need to understand uh, the options out there. I think a lot of times the issue is that uh, people go to one kind of therapy. Uh, the therapy doesn't give them the results that they are looking for right away, and um, they call the day. Uh, they they decide that you know what I'm I'm too old. Uh, this is this didn't work. I don't think anything else is going to work. And uh, of course. You know, they haven't looked at the variety of options that are out there. And, you know, trauma is a very, very complex mental illness. Uh, it uh, does take more than one approach to really treat it. It has to be a multifaceted approach. The second point, of course, is that um, motivation, right, where people are at. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, people cannot get out of the uh, funk they're in, and it's hard for them to... Um, you know, see, seek the help that they need. So uh, the motivation, of course, is not going to be there. But sometimes it's fear. People are afraid that um, a lot of their traumatic experiences will come up and uh, they will experience all that pain, whether it's uh, emotional pain or, uh, or uh, emotional uh, aspects of a physical pain, will come to surface for them again and, re- and re-traumatize them. So motivation is key, but also understanding what's out there so that they can be helped is another part of it. Right. And, you know, I um, have, I mean, I've seen many patients over the years, and and one comes to mind from a little while ago um, where this particular person was uh, very successful, um, type A, uh, you know, did very well. Everything was on the, from the outside was perfect looking. Um, but the marriage was sexless and, uh, you know, I'm an expert in that area. Uh, so, <laughs> so they went, had gone to a sex therapist and, and that's often, uh, what happens is people come to see me after they've gone to a sex therapist. And, and so I had done my assessment and, you know, I, uh, asked about the childhood and, um, and I'm no psychiatrist by any stretch of the imagination, but I know it has an impact. And, and so this person had suffered abuse as a child and was also, um, the child an adult child of an alcoholic and this person as well was drinking daily and and she had gone to a sex therapist and and when i was reviewing the sexual response cycle and things like that just from a general 
um, she said, oh, the sex therapist went through all that. And I said, what did she suggest? And she told, you know, she said what she had suggested. But I said to her, you're never that is never going, you're never going to reach that. That's never going to happen until you address those issues that you experienced as a child. So what is childhood trauma and what is the impact that it can have on a person's personal and professional life? So childhood trauma comes in different forms. Um, it could be physical childhood trauma, obviously, uh, you know, if they have been in a, in a traumatic event, um, such as a, uh, a car accident or something that they don't have the ability to process, uh, which is what we call the actual definition of trauma, is when, when an event happens in front of you and you don't have the resilience or the, the coping mechanisms to make sense of it. So the first type is, is the physical trauma, but the second one is, of course, the psychological trauma that uh, oftentimes... Um, uh, almost everyone, I would say, has had some sort of it uh, in in various degrees. And uh, that uh, childhood trauma psychologically oftentimes comes back to something called attachment, uh, which is really our ability to uh, feel secure um, and to feel connected and to feel um, well taken care of by the primary caregivers when we are in our uh, formative years, you know, developmental years. So uh, when, when this happens, oftentimes, uh, of course, the child uh, cannot uh, attach securely. They um, cannot find that um, trust, that uh, certainty when they're growing up. And they carry this uh, sense with them, this feeling with them uh, into their adulthood and into their relationships. And you so, mentioned the word trust. Yeah. Is it about um, because perhaps you've grown up in a in a family where things were insecure, whether it was neglect or financial issues or alcohol or drugs or crime? Um, is it people become trusting and non-trusting? Well, absolutely. Because if you have somebody who is supposed to provide um, physical and emotional safety for you, and uh, those feelings are not there. Those, those um, uh, sensations, of the, but it's physical sensations of, of having that uh, primary caregiver take care of you when you're, when you're a baby or as a toddler or as a teenager is not there. Um, or whether psychologically you feel that every moment is going to be uncertain. Every moment uh, you know, there may be danger. There may be... Uh, something happening to you or someone who, uh, who you are um, surrounded by may have something happening to them. Uh, that results in that person not to have trust uh, in their environment, in uh, people around them, to take care of them, and ultimately in themselves. And uh, we see that basically when people have low self-esteem as a result of uh, childhood trauma. I also want to talk about triggering, um, being triggered. Uh, sometimes people are triggered by authority, um, people in authority, or they're triggered by somebody showing up late, or they're triggered by um, the 
I had a patient one time who said she was triggered because um, the whenever she heard ice in a glass, because then she that was a sign when she was a child that her mother would start drinking. Um, so if even if one of her kids got ice cubes out of the freezer, she would just freak start to freak out. So what is this triggering, and and why does that happen? Um, and and are people aware of it, or can they, um, you know, how how does that affect their lives? So marine tr- uh, triggers are basically uh, associations, uh, neuro associations in our brain. Uh, anytime we have an experience, um, any event that we experience, uh, our sensory system basically absorbs uh, all the information that's, that's surrounding that event, whether it's visual, whether it's auditory, whether it's a sense of smell or sense of touch. And so these get registered in our memory, in, the, in long-term memory, basically. And there is uh, a link to this, uh, kind of like a hyperlink on a website, basically. And um, if something similar to this sensory information, uh, this, uh, let's say it was a smell, occurs uh, in future, uh, basically that uh, memory um, is activated. So that whole event can be re-triggered. And this is oftentimes out of our uh, conscious awareness. It is an unconscious process. But of course, people uh, do become aware of it over time if they continue experiencing uh, the uh, feelings and the physical symptoms associated with that past trauma as triggered through that uh, basically trigger or that anchor. Right. And people often have, who have experienced trauma, correct me if I'm wrong, have emotion regulation issues. So much like my patient who would scream at her children if they, you know, took ice out of the freezer at the wrong time, um, you know, or if uh, somebody is, you know, in a position of, of a, you know, or encounters somebody who's in a position of authority, uh, they may not even realize that, um, that this is happening for them. But their response may be, they may be unable to control their response and, and have a kind of a sustained emotional sense of calm. So they, they lose control, basically. And, and this is related to changes in the brain that we see. So um, one part of our brain called the amygdala, it's, it's kind of like our smoke, smoke alarm. And... Um, you know how you can get annoyed by very sensitive smoke alarms. Sometimes you're just making a barbecue and it just goes off. Mm-hmm. And the amygdala's job is really to keep us safe. And what happens is when somebody has trauma, that, uh, that alarm system, that hypervigilance system is, um, is triggered, right? So what happens is if uh, that uh, alarm system is overactive, and we get the, the tiniest little uh, trigger. Now, it could be a word that uh, someone says, so such as a partner, or it could be uh, uh, maybe some sight of something, and that could trigger the person to go into that alarm mode and that hypervigilance mode. And, of course, when that happens, the fight-to-fight mechanism uh, gets activated, where the person is ready to fight. And um, that's where the emotional dysregulation, the anger, the irritability comes in. And oftentimes that person uh, who is exhibiting these symptoms is not even aware that um, this was triggered uh, through their past, uh, past trauma.
Um, what can people do uh, to salvage their lives, basically? And, and what kind of treatment do you recommend? And is, is it a pill? Uh, oftentimes people will say to me, just, just get the doctor to give me a pill or tell the doctor I need surgery. But it's often more than that, isn't it? Uh, it is. It is. So let me just explain a little bit about how trauma actually um, gets manifested um, in our bodies. Well, trauma is stored in our entire nervous system, uh, Maureen. So we have the central nervous system, which is our brain and our spinal cords. And then you have the peripheral nervous system. So all the, you know, all the other nerves in our body where we have you know, sensations of basically pain and touch, etc. And also our digestive tract and all the other internal organs. So uh, we are one nervous system. And I think uh, when we look at trauma um, and consider that trauma is stored in the entire body, not just the brain, we have to approach it from a multi-dimensional uh, kind of way, basically, uh, multifaceted therapy. And, you know, you mentioned medications. That's a big part of it. I, I mean, uh, you know, oftentimes with trauma, we have many comorbidities, such as anxiety, such as depression, such as uh, uh, sometimes physical ailments, um, such as, for example, gastritis is com- commonly associated with trauma. So medications can certainly help deal with a lot of the comorbid conditions. Now, as for the trauma itself, um, you know, some of these medications uh, have had some effects, for example, relieving nightmares in um, uh, trauma when people have you know, flashbacks to traumatic events. But uh, overall, um, most of the medications are used for comorbidities. Then we go to the next part of it, of course, which is counseling or psychotherapy. And um, it, uh, it has to be basically geared towards processing of the trauma. Uh, oftentimes when we get traumatized, there's three responses, fight, flight, or freeze. And in all three situations, um, that traumatic event or experience was way beyond our ability to deal with it at the time when it happened. So... We need to process that traumatic event and make sense of it and let it go, release it. And so any kind of uh, counseling or psychotherapy that we receive has to be geared towards processing that. Now, that's just the psychological part, of course. Then there is uh, physical therapy. For example, uh, we know there's been uh, many studies done on yoga and its impact on relieving trauma. Massage therapy. I have a colleague uh, of mine who um, tells me stories about people uh, basically spontaneously releasing the trauma on the massage table when when, uh, they're getting a massage because that is also stored in the body. So many body therapies can also help with the um, trauma that's stored in the body. There, it, there's just so many different ways. And um, it, what about people who, you know, I hear this quite a lot. They don't like themselves. They don't love themselves. They don't believe in themselves or they don't, um, they have, as you mentioned, low self-esteem, but, and therefore they lack the self-care. They may self-medicate. Um, just quickly, we have about a minute left. Um, yeah. So uh, those people basically have um, childhood, most likely childhood trauma. And to get rid of uh, the self-esteem issues, the low self-esteem issues, they have to first process that trauma. Uh, now, obviously, uh, if they're self-medicating with alcohol or substances, um, 
uh, it's very difficult to get them into therapy. And I think if there are programs out there uh, actually identifying people, um, people's trauma and helping them get into some sort of, uh, um, first of all, uh, therapy to uh, teach them about their trauma, that can go a long way. Um, education would be the key here. Absolutely. And also the Elumine Centers for Brain Excellence. And uh, your website is, Dr. Adelotti? Um, com. E-L-U-M-I-N-D.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's a Center for Hope and Healing. And uh, thank you, Dr. Adelotti, for joining thank the program. You, You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.